Do you have what it takes to uncover the secrets of your own past? Well, let's find out with Baldur's Gate this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 77 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm with you once again to talk about a game from the pre-DOS, pre from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. I guess I'm a little rusty, eh? So yeah, it's it's been a while since a show, or since uh, the last show came out, and uh, you know, the reason for that is, as, as a lot of you know, I was away on, uh, on, on business travel for a good three weeks, and... Uh, I'm back. I've been back for a little bit now, and um, wow, it's uh, it's good to be back. Let me say, uh, you know, be, being away, being out on the West Coast was cool. You know, I got to spend some time in Vancouver, uh, do some things around there, and uh, you know, I ran along the seawall and went for some hikes, did the grouse grind, and obviously, you know, worked a little bit in there and had some meetings and and stuff like that too. And uh, you know, it was cool and it was fun, but. Uh, it's good to be home. And after that, I was in Seattle and uh, cool stuff in Seattle. Enjoyed the city. I think it was Fleet Week while I was there. You know, I went down. I was there on a Saturday and I uh, went down to Pike's Place Market and there were a bunch of uh, Navy guys walking around and there were ship stock that people could go and look at. I don't know if they're there all the time. They may be. But uh, and uh, as I was walking around the waterfront, the uh, the Blue Angels, the uh, U.S., one of the U.S., uh, you know, aerial Air Force air demonstration, sorry, the U.S. Navy air demonstration teams flying, you know, their blue F-18s were buzzing the waterfront back and forth. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a cool time. Also, while I was out there, I, w- I got to uh, finally hang out with my good buddy, Rick Moyer. He lives just uh, about two hours outside of, uh, of Seattle towards uh, kind of south and then towards the coast. And uh, yeah, I spent the day with Rick and his wife, Amy, and, and their family, and we did a whole bunch of cool stuff. I ate some great food. We had amazing times. It's it's really, really awesome when you get to meet, you know, your quote unquote internet friends, uh, you know, for the first time in, in, in real life, IRL and all that. I also did a little guest spot on on his podcast where we just chatted about, you know, what we did during that day and how, you know, what it was like meeting and... Uh, you know, it's not something I've done a lot, meet, uh, meet my, my internet friends. I mean, I've known Rick for almost, if not more than, I think almost 10 years. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we met up and, and you know, I, I obviously knew what he looked like and, you know, I knew where his, you know, I figured out where his house was and I kind of knew what to expect, knew where that was and, and everything. And, and it was cool. Like there was no awkwardness. There was no like, oh, this is you. Okay. I guess just because like, it's not like it used to be, right? It's not like the BBS days where you're kind of like... You know, someone's just a screen name and some posts on a message board. And, uh, you know, you know these people. You're, you you see their lives thanks to, you know, things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these things. You know, you, you really do get to know people. So, yeah, there was like it, it was it was a really great time hanging out with Rick and family, the Moyers, if you will. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I only hope that I'll get the chance to uh, to get over there again. And then later on in the week while I was down in Seattle, I, uh, I got to meet up with uh, with Ryan listener of the show he uh he heard that i was coming to seattle and he dropped me uh dropped me a line and we set up uh, an evening so we went had some dinner and a drink and uh and that was a lot of fun too it was always great 
to meet people. And, uh, you know, this stuff really does, you know, these things, the hangouts, all this stuff really does get me out of my comfort zone. Cause you know, I, again, I, I've said it many, many times. I'm a, I'm a shy person and, uh, you know, especially there being out of my element, you know, I was basically on this three week business trip effectively on my own the whole time. And so I really did have to like push it, you know, to kind of, uh, get myself out there and to, uh, to talk to people and that kind of thing. Cause, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big, big, big challenge for me. So thanks, Rick. Thanks, Ryan, for, for keeping me company on my travels. It was lots and lots of fun. But all that aside, we're here. We're doing a show. Let's get to it. Okay, so before we get things rolling, uh, we got... There's a couple of emails, but we got one we're going to go over now, and it is from Jenny. Jenny writes, Hello, Joe. Not much to say about the last few episodes, as I never played Tank Platoon or Star Wars Rebellion, and while I did play some Baldur's Gate, I don't really have any strong or interesting memories to warrant writing about my personal experiences with it. I did want to write in, though, because recently I was listening to some of your older episodes, and in one, I think it was Police Quest, you mentioned the old Sierra hint books and how you needed a special red film thing to read the hints. They called it an adventure window. What you didn't mention, or maybe don't remember, is that the hint books had fake questions and actually made fun of the people who read them and were written by Roberta Williams herself. My specific memories of this are strongest with King's Quest for the Perils of Rosella. The game came out when I was five, and I was really too young to play it by myself. So I had to wait for my older brother or sister to type in all the commands and such to, uh, to play through the game with me. I was, however, a voracious reader, even when I was that young, so I would take the hint book and viewer and read the hint book, imagining it taking place in the game, even though the hint book introductions told me I wasn't supposed to just read through it. To this day, I still remember the hint book mocking me for reading through it. There was a question about using a red balloon to fly across the mountains, which of course isn't something that happens, and the hint book outright told you to stop cheating and just play the game. There's also a fake question in, in, the, in there about finding pink satin slippers in the troll's house. And the answer was, do you think the troll has another side to him? But even for the legitimate questions, many of the answers had mocking tones. The hint for the infamous whale tongue puzzle was, I hope you like climbing. The answer for the location of the unicorn's bridle was, you don't really want me to tell you, do you? Okay, fine. And the response for the question as to whether or not certain doors in Genesis Palace could be opened was, there are some things mortal eyes should never see. A quick check of other hint books show that Al Lowe, Leisure Suit Larry, and Jim Wall's Police Quest, though at least he was nicer about it, uh, did this too. Just a quick little burst of nostalgia about it, and I thought I'd write in and see if it jogged anyone else's memories. There are scans of a lot of hint books over at Sierra Gamers at uh, sierragamers.com slash hint dash books if you want to read them. Keep up the good work, Jenny. P.S. Before sending this, I looked up the hint book for KQ5 out of curiosity, and one of the questions was, what sort of things does Cedric help me with? With help in quotation marks. And the answer was, not much really. He's more like a pesky sidekick. It's like they knew People were going to hate him. I love it. Well, thanks, Jenny. And, you know, maybe I should do, um, I should probably do kind of a, uh, an episode on, on hint books and strategy guides. I know, uh, Brian over at the space game junkie, they just did an episode about, uh, about strategy guides relating to space games. But, uh, yeah, like the, the Sierra hint books were definitely a thing unto 
themselves. And the LucasArts ones were fun too, but the Sierra ones really had some snark to them. I do I do remember that. I didn't remember it until you brought it up, but you're you're absolutely absolutely right. So hey, maybe we'll uh, we'll do a special on that or do it as a as a hangout or something like that, and uh, we'll talk all about hint books and whether and if anyone's called the hint line. I never called the hint line because that was expensive. So uh, yeah, thanks for that, and uh, keep on writing, keep on listening. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for so this week I'm touching a genre, a game that I tend to stray away from with a series that I actually did play a little bit back in the day, and that series is called Baldur's Gate. Now, Baldur's Gate is a series of two games developed by one of my favorite shops of all time, Bioware, and it was published by our pals at Interplay. Uh, The first game in the series, simply called Baldur's Gate, released in the year 1998. So as I just said, this time around we're touching a genre that I tend to be hesitant to cover for a variety of reasons, though none of them are actually really all that good. Baldur's Gate is a role-playing game. A role-playing game is one many of us know well, both in digital and paper form. This is a very popular genre. It's been a type of game forever. <laughs> and you know, it definitely translated to, uh, to PCs over the years. So in a role-playing game, the player takes control of either a single character or a party of characters. These characters all exist in a well-defined world. They all have backstories, personalities, unique abilities, and individual outlooks and opinions of the world around them. Now, the world can really be anything, but you know, due to the requirement that the world be fairly richly defined, uh, many computer role-playing games take their inspiration from classic pen and paper RPGs, such as Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, and other things like that. Now, much like an adventure game, the story generally begins with the issuing of some kind of epic quest. This quest may be issued very explicitly by an authority figure like a king or some other kind of leader. Otherwise, the quest can develop organically simply through your player or your party experiencing events in the world and you know, doing what they need to do to get through them. Player characters are generally, though not always, assigned some form of a character class. Now, this class defines their various combat and non-combat abilities. While classes are generally defined by the world, they do fall into a few general categories, such as, you know, classes with focuses on melee combat, ranged combat, stealth, or various forms of uh, support roles. In a medieval setting, like Dungeons & Dragons, for example, these classes are represented by things like fighters, knights, mages, priests, thieves, rangers, and, you know, other things like that. In a more sci-fi setting, these same classes can be represented by soldiers, technicians, hackers, medics, or infiltrators. While the names may differ, everyone basically has a role to play. <laughs> so as characters progress through the story of the role-playing game, they encounter other beings in the world, usually called non-player characters or NPCs. Uh, these NPCs are controlled by the computer in uh, a video role-playing game, and by the dungeon or game master in a pen and paper RPG. Some of these NPCs may be friendly, they may offer things like information, equipment, protection, or even express interest in joining you on your quest. Others may not be so friendly. 
And this is generally where combat comes in. While some RPGs offer real-time combat, most traditional RPGs offer turn-based, more strategic combat, or some kind of combination thereof. This is where your character's classes come in. Properly acquitting yourself in combat means using each of your party member's skills when they're needed and in the most effective way possible, or at least the most effective way you can come up with. Now, aside from your main quest, you will encounter many NPCs in the world who need things. They'll offer side quests, which tend to provide either monetary or material rewards. While these quests don't generally move the actual story forward, they do help you develop your skills, equipment, and uh, the balance in whatever form of bank account you have in this world. Of course, as you progress, your party will also gain experience, usually in the form of experience points. Gain enough experience and you gain a level. Gaining levels generally provides characters with the opportunity to increase their base statistics and gain new skills. Now, by the end of the game, you and your party reach the end of your quest, usually culminating in some kind of epic and challenging final battle and what is hopefully a worthwhile resolution. RPGs are long games, usually spanning, you know, 30, 40, even 80, if not more, hours of gameplay, especially for completists who want to run every side quest and explore every inch of the world. The length and depth of these games is the main reason that I'm hesitant to cover them on the show. I don't feel like I have enough time to get into them in, you know, the two or three weeks between episodes. Luckily, this time I had some solo work travel, as I said, uh, and that offered me a bit more time to, uh, to get into this particular game series. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Let's talk story. So Baldur's Gate isn't just a role-playing game emulating or simulating or taking inspiration from the world and systems of Dungeons & Dragons. It is an officially licensed Dungeons & Dragons game. So if you're a pen and paper role player, 
your head is now filling in all kinds of background information and everything. And, you know, you're kind of going, oh, God. Well, no problem. Let's narrow things down a little bit. So here I'm going to deviate a bit from the norm and have sort of a pseudo mini dev story. Since the game world and the game itself were created independently, uh, I want to focus on both of them. So Baldur's Gate, the video game, takes place in the Forgotten Realms campaign setting of Dungeons and Dragons. Now, a campaign setting is basically just a fancy name for a complete world that a Dungeons and Dragons campaign takes place in. This is mostly separate from the rule set and serves as more of a backdrop for adventures. You know, there's things like races, monsters, geography, cities, religions, political movements, all that stuff that make up the world are already defined in this campaign setting. So Forgotten Realms is a setting created by game designer Ed Greenwood. Greenwood has effectively been working in this world for almost his entire life. As a child, Greenwood began writing stories about a world he called the Forgotten Realms. Over years and years, he developed the idea of the realms as existing in a multiverse. So Earth and our universe was one of those multiverses, and the Forgotten Realms were another. In fact, in his original conception of the world, all of Earth's mythological stories like, you know, about elves and dwarves and fairies and all that stuff, actually are stories that came from the realms. Over time, the paths between our universes have been lost, hence why these stories are only ancient legends. This all took place in and around 1967. Now, in 1975, something great happened. Greenwood discovered Dungeons & Dragons. The realms quickly became his go-to setting for all of his personal Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. He'd go on to publish a series of articles in The Dragon, one of uh, the two official D&D magazines. In these articles, he would outline details about his world and, again, over years, would publish countless articles detailing monsters, places, spells, and magic items, all of which existed within the setting of the Forgotten Realms. So around 1986, TSR, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, we're looking for a new campaign setting to include with the game. I think the original, I don't know if the original one was Dragonlance, but I think Dragonlance came earlier. It's kind of much more of a, you know, knights and chivalry kind of a setting. So TSR sent a guy named Jeff Grubb, who was a game designer who worked for TSR, uh, to talk to Greenwood about his Forgotten Realms, because, you know, they've been reading The Dragon and other, other D&D magazines where he had been publishing things, and, uh, you know, they were interested. So apparently, Grubb asked Greenwood if, uh, you know, he basically said, do you make all this stuff up as you go along or do you really have like an actual cohesive plan for this universe? Greenwood answered simply, yes. So Forgotten Realms became the newest campaign setting shortly after the release of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition. So now that we know the history, a little bit of it at least, we're not a D&D podcast, and you know, if anyone knows more about D&D than I do, because I played a little bit of it, but not a ton, uh, feel free to correct me. But anyways, now that we know this history, let's, let's get on to the world. Baldur's Gate exists within the Forgotten Realms. In fact, we're narrowing it down a little bit more. We're really on the western shore of the continent of Faerun. Now, since this shore borders the Sea of Swords, it's commonly known as the Sword Coast. 
the land is bordered by geography on all sides, which is very convenient from a, a gameplay and map making uh, perspective. Uh, you know, it's bordered by mountains, deep forests, and the ocean. However, to the north lies the biggest and most affluent city in the region, the city of Baldur's Gate. That is the northern border of the uh, of the Sword Coast. So as we begin the game, your character, who we will discuss in immense detail in the gameplay section, finds him or herself in Candlekeep, which is an ancient fortress which has been converted into a library. So, you know, mages and priests and stuff study there. While things in Candlekeep are relatively safe and stable, the world around the old fortress is most assuredly not. Things are not well in the Sword Coast. Many people are complaining that iron production, uh, you know, that's like the, the mining and the processing of iron ore, has come to a complete standstill. There's a huge iron shortage. What iron is coming into people's possession is of a very low quality. Tools and non-magical weapons degrade very quickly. I mean, they virtually just rot away. Now, this has led to a large black market in iron with bandits raiding farms and blacksmiths for, you know, just like tools and things they can either resell easily or melt down and, you know, sell as, as fresh iron. Despite its solid walls, things in Candlekeep are not going to stay safe for long. We meet your character. You're an orphan that grew up in Candlekeep under the care and tutelage of a mage known as Gorion. This is where the story begins, and it sure does move on from here, but, you know, this is as good a place as any to cut into gameplay. Before we even get into Candlekeep, we have to do what might be, depending on your point of view, either the funnest or the most infuriating part of any Dungeons & Dragons game. We need to create our character. Now... This isn't an MMO. You have quite a bit of leeway with the direction you take your character creation in, and you can absolutely, I will tell you right now, you can absolutely create a gimped character that will make the game virtually unwinnable right from the start. Most of the choices you make here have an impact on the way you play, so let's get into it. First and foremost, your race. Much like in other RPGs, the race you select dictates what class you'll be most suited to play, what special racial abilities you have, and even how NPCs interact with you. You can choose from seven races, human, elf, half-elf, gnome, halfling, dwarf, and half-orc. As always, humans are the best generalists. Elves are more fragile but more dexterous, gnomes have high magic resistance, dwarves are physically tough, and half-orcs are strong. Of course, all races, except humans, because, hey, we're great, have class restrictions. Uh, for example, orcs, dwarves, and halflings cannot be mages because they don't got no magic. <laughs> or that they are uh, not well-suited to being magic users, shall we say. Now, next, after your race, comes class selection. Now, these are all classic D&D character classes. There's the fighter, ranger, paladin, cleric, mage, thief, bard, sorcerer, druid, monk, and barbarian. Each class has its purpose in combat, usually consisting of, you know, melee ranged combat, stealth type mechanics, or some form of support, either via defensive skills or healing. However, you're not only limited to a single class. Baldur's Gate implements the advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition rules, and according to those rules, you have some options. If you're human, you have the ability to do something which is called dual classing. So dual classing is uh, something you can do on the fly. So say you initially become a fighter. 
or you know, maybe even more specifically for this example, say you become a Kensai, who is a fighter, who is really great with weapons, but can't wear any armor. You're sort of like a, a glass melee cannon, which is kind of a dangerous thing to be. Well, you can dual class at some point into, say, a mage. So you can be a Kensai mage, and uh, you can start developing some spellcasting ability to supplement your melee damage or uh, provide some defense. Now, the advantage to dual classing is that you can choose very specifically which of your classes you're gaining experience in. So if you just want a couple of things from the mage, you can focus on the fighting and just have a few little, you know, mage abilities sprinkled in. Or you can do half-half, or you could roll the other way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very flexible kind of a system. Now, that is unlike multi-classing, which the other races can do. So multi-class characters start off the game with the abilities of two or even three classes. This is not on the fly. You choose this from the start and you are stuck with it. So you want to be a fighter mage cleric? Go for it. Now, the downside of multi-classing is that you have the same experience cap as if someone who, as someone who would have a single class character and uh, all your classes gain experience at the same time. So basically, if you're triple classing, you know, multi-classing with three classes, you're going to gain levels three times slower than someone who is single classing. So this is really a double-edged sword. Well, you have more options for skills and there's some really good synergies that you can come up with, you will level slower than a comparable single class character. Now, after you finally decide what you want to be class-wise, you need to choose your alignment. Again, this is the classic D&D concept of alignment, uh, consisting of any two elements from the set of lawful, neutral, or chaotic, and good, neutral, or evil. So alignment basically corresponds to your character's base personality traits. Now, they range from lawful good on one side to chaotic evil on the other side. Now, lawful good is sort of your run-of-the-mill Boy Scout. Think of like classic Superman. You follow the law, and you do your best to uphold the law, even if it means people may suffer as a result. The law and the good of the law is paramount. Lawful good characters basically put the needs of the many above the needs of the few, or the one. (laughs) On the other hand, the other extreme, we have chaotic evil. This person is basically the definition of pure evil. They're selfish and they take pleasure from the suffering of others. They will tend to make the choice that will work out best for them and cause maximum suffering to the most people. They're horrible. So in between those extremes, we have everyone else. Basically, the way it works is that good people will always try to do what is right. You know, what they may consider to be right is determined by that first qualifier in their alignment. So the second word in their alignment is good. The first one tells us what they think is good. So lawful means they uphold the law. If you're neutral good, you believe in the good of the world over its rules. And uh, chaotic good individuals kind of run by their own personal moral compass. So, you know, they're doing what they feel is for the betterment of everyone. Other people may not agree with them. Now, neutrals believe in balance. So if you're lawful neutral, you believe in the maintenance of order, usually by government. Uh, True neutrals aim for balance in all things, which is frankly really hard to play. And uh, chaotic neutrals tend to be risk takers and gamblers, things like that. Now, from the evil side of things, you have kind of this weird misnomer of like lawful evil. It's kind of hard to consider that someone could be lawful and evil. But what that really means is 
that they believe in government as long as they are at the head of it or they are benefiting from it. So like say a corrupt politician would be a lawful evil character. Neutral evil characters care about being at the top above all else. And uh, as I mentioned, chaotic evil characters are just plain jerks. So to some extent, your alignment will dictate how you should roleplay your character. A neutral good character will not bring a criminal to justice if he or she feels the greater good would be served by letting them go free. It's definitely something to keep in mind as you play. In-game, your alignment will also affect some of your player interactions, and it definitely has an effect on your party. Members with conflicting alignments may not get along. They'll argue and fight and whatever, and some characters will opt not even to join you if the rest of your party's alignments are stacked against them. If you have kind of this evil party and you get a lawful good character, they may just say, nope, I'm good, thanks. So next, after alignment, you roll for your abilities. Now, these are the standard RPG stats of strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Uh, you know, Certain classes focus on certain abilities. Having a priest with high strength and low wisdom, not a great way to play. But as I said, you can try. Might, might work. I don't know. <laughs> Finally, you can choose some skills. These are basically weapon specializations. So once all that is done and you give your newly created character a name, you enter the game. Of course, you could have skipped all this by selecting one of the predefined uh, character templates, but hey, what's the fun in that? You want to create, you, you want your guy to be yours. You're going to be playing him for a while. So whoever you created, you find yourself in Candlekeep as Go Ryan's Ward, an orphan left in Candlekeep. Now, this part, until you leave Candlekeep, is, is a tutorial of sorts. You wander around the town, and uh, you run into various NPCs who help to train you in the various game mechanics. Well, why? Well, it's not for your, your well, it is sort of for your well-being, but, you know, it's not just for fun. Gorion is looking for you, and uh, you soon find out that for some reason, you need to leave town, and you need to do it as soon as you are ready. Now, you have a bit of money to equip yourself uh, for your first foray outside of Candlekeep, all the while visiting various buildings in the town. Now, along the way, you run into Imoen, another orphan and your longtime friend. Now, she wants to come with you. Of course, you say it's going to be dangerous, blah, 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 and you tell her no. Now, during your run around Candlekeep, you're attacked by some bounty hunters. This happens, I think, I think twice, maybe? Maybe three times? It turns out that a lot of people are interested in you all of a sudden. Uh, Gorion isn't telling you why... And he's not telling you anything, frankly, aside from the fact that you need to get out of here. I mean, if it's not frustrating from a player perspective, but, you know, if I'm role playing this guy, I would be frustrated. Right. You know, like I got to get out of town. I've never been outside of town. I don't know why. Just uh, I mean, it's it's, you know, the storytelling in this game is 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 not bad at all. So once you gather some basic supplies and some very kind of low B class appropriate gear, you and your guardian head out under the cover of night. Well, as you may expect, because, you know, it's a game, things don't really go according to plan. You're soon accosted by a group of bandits led by a huge, hulking, armored figure. Gorion tells you to run as he holds them off. He is able to defeat the bandits, but he's killed by their leader, who I'm pretty sure is, is the dude from uh, the intro that you heard there, heard there being all ominous. Now, Gorion's sacrifice was not in vain. You do escape with your life. The next morning, you come across Imoen, 
It turns out she found a note on uh, Gorion's desk telling of the impending journey. Uh, being the effective little thief that she is, she followed you in secret, returning to the site of the battle. Uh, you and her find your guardian's body, and uh, you do find the note that Imowen talked about. It, again, doesn't give you much more information than you already have. You're in danger, and it's strongly suggested you get out of Candlekeep. Well, you and Imowen, who has by now joined your party, decide to continue on to the friendly arm in. Ryan said that there would be friends there waiting for you, or waiting for you and him. On your way, you soon encounter Zar and Montaran. Now, Zar is an evil, I believe he's actually chaotic evil, uh, is a evil neuromancer, and uh, Montaran is a halfling fighter thief. Now, you can have these guys join your party. Just keep in mind that they both have evil alignments. Uh, you do retain the option of not taking them on, but if you do, your little band expands out to four. Now, this launches us into the larger world of the Sword Coast. Now, along the way to the Friendly Arm Inn and beyond it, you'll encounter many more potential allies, all of whom have unique backstories, personalities, and fighting styles. Many of them are, are very memorable characters, but I'll leave it to you to discover them on your own. That's kind of the fun of it, of figuring out, you know, your party and who you like and who you don't. And maybe this isn't the most ideal party, but you really like that particular person and you want them involved. So building your party of up to six characters is an ongoing and ever-changing process. Managing the various skills, alignments, and interpersonal conflicts allows for some interesting opportunities to really roleplay your character and the others as well. Now, the game's combat is experienced in possible real time. Uh, you can either let your characters do their own thing, though this generally just means attack with their primary weapon, which for a lot of characters is frankly not very useful, or you can pause the action to issue them orders such as moving to a location or casting a spell or doing whatever. Now this possible real-time strategic combat is pretty standard for non-combat RPGs at this point, you know, like not games like you know Mass Effect and Fallout, which are really real-time combat focused, but uh, you know, underneath the action, even though it's technically in real time, is really just done in like time-based turns and automated dice rolls. But on the surface, it really does look like it's happening in real time. So as you progress through the game's seven chapters, you run many quests, you fight many battles, and uh, you know you interact with the various factions and groups within the Sword Coast, eventually ending up at the great city of Baldur's Gate. Here you meet the foe that will become both your nemesis and the key to finding out about your origins. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So Baldur's Gate came out in 1998. So 
we have some more modern system requirements here than, than you know we do a lot of the time. So to run the game, you needed at least a Pentium 166 megahertz with 16 megs of RAM, a DirectX capable video card with at least two megs of video memory, and DirectX 3 on your Windows 95 or 98 operating system. Drive space wise, you needed about 320 megs of space and at least a 4X CD-ROM drive. Now, if you really wanted to roll, you needed a Pentium 200, which I had, all right, 32 megs of RAM, a four meg DirectX card, DirectX 5, and 570 megs of drive space. So Baldur's Gate runs on Bioware's well-known Infinity Engine. So Baldur's Gate was the first game to release on this engine, but uh, you know many other games that I do promise I will one day cover followed, you know, followed Baldur's Gate on this engine, including Icewind Dale and Planescape Torment. So the engine facilitates the creation of 2D isometric role-playing games. I've discussed the ins and outs of the isometric perspective before. Uh, it's basically a three-quarter view of the world where the X, Y, and Z axes are all equidistant from each other. But you know, for for everyday use, it's a three-quarter view. Now, I know many engines started out their lives as sort of, you know, the first game in a series. So you'd assume that the Infinity engine was just pulled from Baldur's Gate code, Baldur's Gate's code for the next game. Well, that is what happened, except for a few little details. So the Infinity engine was originally being designed to power a prototype real-time strategy game which BioWare was calling Battleground Infinity. While that game never ended up happening, the engine was repurposed and re-engineered to act as the core of an RPG. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this. I mean, Vanilla World of Warcraft ran on a heavily modified Warcraft 3 engine. Uh, it seems RTS and game engines are, are very adaptable. Though, if you really get down to it, there aren't really a ton of technical differences between an isometric real-time strategy game and an isometric role-playing game with plausible real-time combat. I mean, they both have maps, obstacles, units, AI, combat. I mean, the only real difference is that the RPG is a much bigger game with a lot more scripted content and a lot more kind of zone transitions. The engine would serve Bioware until about 2002 when it was supplanted by the Aurora engine which, uh, which supported full 3D environments. Now the game's music was composed by Michael Honig. He's a German electronic music composer that uh, was a big part of the progressive rock scene in Berlin in the late 60s, and uh, he even temporarily became a member of Tangerine Dream. In 1977, he released a solo electronic album called Departure from the Northern Wasteland. And this is a really good album, guys. If you wanna go look at this, go, go on YouTube, and uh, search for Michael Honig, Departure from the Northern Wasteland. This is some good electronica. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of more on the like chill, sort of not quite ambient. It had a certain name. It's like Berlin something. That's the style. But uh, my, my electronic music style memory is, is about 15 years old. And so it's rusty. But it's really good. If you like electronic music, if you like something a little chill, I was listening to this while I was researching the show. It is cool. So shortly after he released this album, uh, he uh, moved to the US and uh, eventually he would open a studio in LA and record all kinds of TV and movie music, including music for the Max Headroom TV series, uh, Dark Skies and Dracula 3000. His only game credits though are uh, the Baldur's Gate games. 
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So the story of Baldur's Gate is tied very much to the story of the company that created it, BioWare. Now, the story of BioWare is of particular interest to me because they're originally a Canadian company founded out west in Edmonton, Alberta. Now, the story of BioWare starts at the University of Alberta. Not where you'd think it would, though. Not in the Faculty of Engineering or Computer Science. Our story begins in med school. Three newly minted MDs, Drs. Greg Zetchuk, Ray Muzika, and Augustine Yip, had all become close friends in the crucible of medical school. Uh, The three aspiring doctors spent their non-study time partaking in their favorite common hobbies, games. Not only video games, though. Uh, you know, the, the three of them will tell you that between them, they may well have played every video game ever made, but also pen and paper gaming, most notably Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, fine. But how do three doctors make a video game company? How do they even make a game? Well, it turns out that Yip had a, a penchant for art, and, uh, and Ray and Greg had some experience in programming medical education software. So, you know, we weren't starting from zero here. We had two programmers and we had an artist. Well, the three of them got together and uh, started building stuff as a trio. You know, it was still very medically relevant kinds of software. Uh, Their first project was an acid-base simulator. So I guess, you know, you'd add acids and bases and do titrations and all that fun chemistry stuff, but uh, it was just a simulation. After that, they built a gastroenterology patient simulator. That's something I'd, I, I'm sure if, we, if I poked around on YouTube, I could probably find it because, you know, this is all like the history of BioWare. Uh, the group of them, though, were starting to see that uh, while being a doctor was all well and good, their passion and their talents were taking them in a different direction. So the three guys pooled their available funds. You know, they were doctors after all. This wasn't med school anymore. They were practicing. And... Uh, you know, they, they got together $100,000. Now, with this seed money, they left the medical profession behind and set up shop in Greg's basement. Their company was named BioWare. Now, how'd they come up with this? Well, bio is, I don't know if it's Latin, probably, but anyways, bio means from the chemist, and uh, where simply means stuff. So, you know, these games they were making were stuff from the chemist, a little nod to their medical backgrounds. So they knew their first commercial game probably couldn't be done alone. I mean, this was 1995 and, you know, this wasn't really the era anymore of uh, of the single programmer kind of game. So they got together with another local dev team known as Pyrotech. Their first game was called Shattered Steel. It was an action-packed mech combat game, uh, probably inspired by, by MechWarrior a little bit. Despite being action-oriented, though, the game followed a very strong narrative, using the world, dialogue, and music to really set the scene. This was no simple Quake or MechWarrior 2 clone. This was its own thing. Even before Shattered Steel was done, though, the trio had their eyes on their next project. So remember back in Tech Focus? Well, we're looping back around now. The guys wanted to make an amazing real-time strategy game, so Battleground Infinity was born. So now we can get into a bit more real-world, non-technical detail about this whole thing. So some very rudimentary work was done on BioWare's next-gen RTS game, enough so that they had a demo they could circulate around to publishers to, uh, to generate interest. Well, it worked. The demo caught Interplay's eye. However, they were not actually looking for an RTS. 
It seems that Interplay had gotten the rights to advance Dungeons & Dragons, which had been more recently held by SSI with you know, their whole series of gold box games. Well, the choice was clear. I mean, the guys were like massive D&D fans, and the opportunity to work on a Dungeons & Dragons game was too good to pass up. Battleground Infinity would be modified into a role-playing game. Frankly, the biggest challenge of the development was not really a technical one per se. It was taking the entirety of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Dungeon Master's Guide and Player's Handbooks and distilling them down into a set of rules that would be usable and playable in the form of a real-time combat RPG. Now, during the development of Baldur's Gate, uh, Augustine Yip decided to return to the med- medical profession and uh, and would leave the company. Who and uh, you know he sort of he left Ray and Greg in charge of a team that was approaching a maximum size of actually about sixty people. The development of Baldur's Gate took three years. Now, one of the reasons that might be the case, or one of the reasons they say that it took long, was that the majority of the newly expanded Bioware team had never actually published a game before. So they hired programmers and artists and all that, but none of them had actually worked on a video game before. Now, I believe it's Greg that claims that, you know, the team's tenacity, work ethic, and love for the RPG genre in all its forms is uh, the th- are the things that got the game actually completed. Now, the level on production or the level of production on the game was was very, very high. Not only in gameplay and graphics, but some high-end voice talent was also brought on board. Uh, we can hear voices like Frank Welker. Uh, he's well-known as being the voice of Fred and Scooby-Doo and Megatron from, Transpor- from Transformers and, uh, and Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, among tons of other stuff. We also hear Jennifer Hale, who we know as Femshep from Mass Effect, GLaDOS from Portal, and, and got her... You know, her her filmography, gameography, uh, voiceography, whatever you want to call it, is is endless. Uh, we also got to hear Rob Paulson, who's the voice of Yako Warner, among many others. And, you know, there's many other well-known voice actors uh, on this game. So once all the voice acting and recording and, you know, art and programming and, and bug fixing and testing and everything were done, the game released just in time for Christmas on December 21st, 1998. So in 1995 to 1998, this game was being built. The game spawned the Infinity Engine, which people claim was the spiritual successor to the Gold Engine that powered the old SSI Gold Box games. Not only that, but it was an amazing game. It reviewed very well and was hailed as not only the best advanced Dungeons & Dragons video game ever released, it may even be the best RPG ever released, at least up to that time. It is attributed with reviving the RPG genre on PCs. Of course, with all the success, an expansion set was immediately started on. Baldur's Gate Tales from the Sword Coast opened up four new areas to explore, balance gameplay, and increase the level cap. That came out within a year in 1999. Now, the year 2000 saw the full sequel, Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Am. Now, I'm going to play the intro. If you don't want spoilers for the ending of the first game, skip ahead about two and a half minutes because there's a bit of a summary of the previous game in here. So I'm warning you now, there are spoilers for the first game in this intro. Don't get mad at me. You 
spend your youth in the library fortress of Candlekeep, under the kind tutelage of your foster father, Gorion. Imoen shared this home, a kindred spirit. Her background was as mysterious as your own. Gorion's murder brought answers to your questions when his killer, Saravok, was revealed to be your brother. You and Saravok were a product of the Time of Troubles, a chaotic period when gods were made flesh and forced to walk the earth. One such deity foresaw his own death and walked the land before the Cataclysm. He left a score of mortal offspring intended to be the fuel for his rebirth. The god was Baal, lord of murder, and you are one of his children. Saravak sought a war of sacrifice to prove his worth, believing he could become the new lord of murder. You killed your brother, sending his taint back to Baal. You were the hero of Baldur's Gate. But some suspected you shared the same lineage as Saravok. You departed soon after, under circumstances much darker than anyone would have believed. They came as you rested, figures cloaked in that cloud thoughts, blurring the lines between consciousness and dreaming. There was no malice or hatred, no mention of an old score, only quick capture and the promise of grim deeds to come. Baldur's Gate 2 continues the story of Gorion's Ward and begins shortly after the end of the first game. Now the second installment is huge with the main quest taking up about 60 hours of gameplay and all the side quests totaling over 300. Now to provide continuity, you could import your existing character from Baldur's Gate or Tales of the Sword Coast. And this is a concept that Bioware has stuck to to this day. I mean, I have one and only one Commander Shepard in all of the Mass Effect games. Basically, I say thanks to Baldur's Gate. Now, the team felt like they had missed a few marks on the first game. I mean, there was a bit of a time crunch since, you know, the base game engine was being developed at the same time as the game. I mean... It's pretty hard to say that a game developed over three years was rushed, but according to the development team, some things were rushed. And now that the engine was mature, they could focus on, ma on making the game they really wanted to. Baldur's Gate 2 featured improved graphics and gameplay and was altogether a superior game to the first, even though the first game was very complete itself. Now, the game released on September 24th, 2000, again to rave reviews. As of 2008, Baldur's Gate 2 has sold over 2 million copies. So what does the future hold for Baldur's Gate? Well, in a certain way, the future is already here. Back in 2012, an enhanced edition of Baldur's Gate was released. The enhancement was developed by Overhaul Games and published by Atari. Now, shortly thereafter, Baldur's Gate 2 was released as well. The enhanced versions have sharper graphics, even more content, an enhanced UI, and uh, you know more straightforward modding support. Uh, these enhanced editions are available on many platforms, including PC, OS X, iOS, Android, and Linux. Now, looking forward from these enhanced editions, 
Overhaul Games and their parent company, Beamdog, have stated, maybe in passing, maybe not, that they are making Baldur's Gate 3 a priority, but, I mean, who really knows what that means? But I think a Baldur's Gate 3 would potentially be amazing. So where can we get the game today? Well, like I just said, basically everywhere. If you want the full original experience, the original games can be grabbed off GOG.com for 10 bucks each. However, what I recommend you grab is the enhanced editions. These are easy to find. You can get them on GOG or Steam for $20 each. You can also get them for mobile devices. Frankly, I really enjoyed the iPad version. You basically have no excuse not to get these games. I mean, they go on sale often and they are available everywhere. Yo, blockers. This is Amiru Nakago, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. Keep being awesome, and remember, watch out, a poisonous snake! Alright, time for some emails. First one comes from my good buddy, Ben Chandler, in Australia, and he writes, Hello, Joe and my fellow blockers. So great to hear you're talking about an old favorite of mine, this show. Baldur's Gate appeals to me on a level few other games do. It's a D&D game that realizes that the fun of the genre isn't so much about the dungeons and the dragons, but how we get to them, why we battle through them. It shows us a world full of people and ideas and permits us to explore it as we please before it expects us to care about saving it. Any game can give me complex minds and catacombs to clear out and challenging beasts to overcome intense battles, but not very many can make me care about doing so. This, to me, is the strength of Baldur's Gate and the excellent sequel. Of course, there's also the tense battles, great soundtrack, huge non-tiled maps, lush graphics, and a hundred other details that make this game so special to me. The elements combine to make a cohesive whole that still resonates all these years later. Naturally, it's not perfect with plenty of frustrating quirks, but I can easily overlook those. The recent enhanced edition does a lot to make it a much more user-friendly experience with some of the more unfair encounters balanced out. Uh, the UI made much more convenient and some odd balance issues tweaked slightly. I'm excited to play the expansion that Beamdog just announced and uh, have been really enjoying Pillars of Eternity, which does a lot to recapture the feel of the Infinity Engine games in general, going out of its way to capture the feel of Baldur's Gate extremely faithfully. It does me good to see this series getting so much love and attention after all these years. I hope you can find it in your heart to love this old treasure, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Love the show as always, and my apologies for such a long email. I just adore this game so much, Ben Chandler. Well, thanks, Ben, and uh, yeah, I don't think you'll be too disappointed with uh, with what I have to say about it, but great memories, and uh, yeah, you know, there's a bunch of games like that are like that for me, you know, that are these these games that that I just love so much, and I can't... I think I talk about Wing Commander at least once a week, you know, <laughs> like... Uh, you know, for me, it's it's more in in simulations and maybe a couple of adventure games, but uh, but yeah, I can definitely uh, I can definitely relate to uh, to loving a game so much that you just can't shut up about it. <laughs> and it wasn't a long email, frankly. Next, we have an email from Elima, and she writes, "Hello, Joe. I didn't play Baldur's Gate when it was released. No, no, wait. Don't take my gamer card away just yet." When Baldur's Gate 2 was released, a friend of mine got me the collector's edition and basically told me, this is awesome, you'll love this, and we should play together. Bear in mind that at the time, I had little to no experience with RPGs, aside from playing one of the first MMORPGs, The Realm Online. No Final Fantasy, barely any Ultima Underworld, nope, my gaming world up to that point 
had been filled with adventure games, Sierra and LucasArts primarily. But this was a gift, and a very nice one at that, the collector's edition. With cloth map, character trading cards, so awesome. So I gave it a try. And from that moment, when your character wakes up in Irenesis' dungeon, when you hear David Warner's unique voice, I was hooked. No, wait, scratch that. I think I was hooked right from the get-go with the main, when the main menu fires up with Michael Honing's wonderful music and that intricate character creator. The game really resonated with me. I had found something I loved, a rich and engaging world, an intriguing story, vibrant characters. I got completely sucked in. I still remember with crystal clarity that first time M1 offered my character a Crimson Rodelia. Silly, I know, but it's still there in my brain. That was the first time I'd ever encountered romance in a game. Of course, I just had to get to the throne of Baal, completed the saga, and uh, I ultimately went back to play Baldur's Gate as well. But corny as it sounds, Baldur's Gate 2 changed my gaming life forever. And then I found mods. Mods aplenty which keep the experience fresh basically forever. Whatever the source, the Pocket Plane, Gibberlings 3, or the Spellhold, or Spellhold the Studios, I downloaded and installed so many mods. A lot of those were NPC mods, but also bug fixes, balance fixes, cosmetic changes, you name it. And I got in deep. Although I never created a mod myself, I got super involved at some point back in college translating a couple of mods to French. I'm actually pretty proud of having translated the entire Zen NPC for BG2 mod by myself. That's nearly 16,000 lines of dialogue. More if you count the BG1 NPC project and the BG1 friendship mod for Zen. Suffice it to say that I've gotten super attached to dear old cranky Zen. Kuliuk did a brilliant job with expanding on what little we had to go on in BG1. Anyhow, that's my Baldur's Gate story. Sorry for the long email, but that goes to show the huge impact the series had on me. Thanks for all the hard work. I look forward to each UMB episode. Block on Emily slash Elima. Wow, thanks. And wow, that, that's amazing. I didn't I didn't realize you were so involved in the uh, in, in the mod community. And yeah, I didn't really talk about the mods, the, the game mods a ton. But yeah, there was definitely was a very vibrant community. I believe uh, there still is around the enhanced edition. And uh you know, in a way, you can kind of say, like, you know, this reminds me a lot of uh, of the Elder Scrolls games, you know, like things like Skyrim and uh, Oblivion before that, because, you know, those games are, are very rich in, in modability and, uh, you know, they're also RPGs. So I kind of feel like Baldur's Gate kind of paved the way for for those. I don't know how much the, the earlier Elder Scrolls games before, like Morrowind and the ones before the, that um, had, you know, in terms of modability, but, uh, at this point releasing an RPG that doesn't support mods is kind of a no, no. And, and i I suspect that Baldur's Gate helped with that a lot. So thanks again. Keep on listening and uh, great, great, great email. Now, finally, we have an email from Trev and Trev writes afternoon, big fan of the show. And I hope this email isn't too late. Baldur's Gate was a major game for me in my childhood and was possibly something that taught me to be patient. My biggest memory is as follows. Farming ankegs outside of Baldur's Gate, spending hours save scumming to get my underleveled party to kill enough ankegs to uh, make sets of armor for my team, only to get down to the blacksmith, who if memory recalls was quite a journey away, and being told he could only make one set of armor at once. In the meantime... The rest of the ankeg plate I had spoiled and became useless. My team had at least leveled, but the risk wasn't worth the reward. 
Baldur's Gate was a great game and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it, even though the sequel and Planescape Torment were far superior. Cheers, Trev. Well, thanks, Trev. And God, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I mean, it didn't happen to me in Baldur's Gate specifically, but yeah, I mean, there's there's been times where I've put all kinds of effort. I think, you know, maybe in like Elite Dangerous or in World of Warcraft or, you know, something like that where, you, where you're going to spend a bunch of time grinding a bunch of stuff and, you know, making it, you know, gathering up mats and, and doing what you need to do. And then, you know, when it comes down to it, the time you spent just wasn't worth the reward you got, you know, either because the thing that you were crafting or, or whatever wasn't, wasn't worth it or some technical issue like that. Like, Oh, I can only make one. And then you're not going to go and, and refarm everything for everyone in your party. So yeah, totally, totally get it. So thanks for the email. So, is Baldur's Gate still fun today? Of course it is. Now, I'm not the biggest RPG fan in the world. I played a bit of pen and paper D&D, a bit of like the Hero Quest board game back in the day, and tons of tabletop battle tech. But, uh, you know, big, expansive, isometric RPGs were never really my thing. Because of that, I either never played these games, or at least I played them very little back in the late 90s. I'll say, I'm still awful at combat and all the fiddly character stats hurt my brain a little bit, but damn, if both these games aren't tons of fun. I mean, the thing I love most about D&D is the world and the storytelling, and this game does that in spades. I mean, the Sword Coast is a real place to me, with people and places and things with background and stories. I mean, I think I've said background and stories a hundred times through this episode, and this game and the sequel do that so well. I mean, if you're into things today like Dragon Age or, you know, any of the Bioware RPGs that came after it, Baldur's Gate is a must play to see where the concept of the modern PC RPG came from. I mean, on top of your historical education, you'll have an amazing time. The original versions of the games are fine and, you know, you can you can certainly grab them from GOG, but I, again, recommend you pick up those enhanced editions instead. They just have a lot of improvements that make the games more fun to play. Either way, you need to play them. These are high-quality games with high-quality art, high-quality voice acting, high-quality gameplay. I mean, like Ben said, there's a couple of little fiddly things from time to time, but ugh, what game doesn't have those? Play them, play them, play them. I can't say more. I can't say that more. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's that for another show. Thanks everyone for your patience while I was tooling around the West Coast. I promise we'll be back on a more regular schedule moving forward. Now next time, I'm going to roll into modern times with coverage of the new King's Quest from The Odd Gentleman and published by The Revived Sierra. Exciting, isn't it? This is going to be great. Now we've also got a long overdue Patreon hangout coming out in the next few weeks as well. I think right now it's scheduled for September 12th. So around there, look for it. We're going to talk, at least for the time being, about... uh, about experiences that that changed you that changed your outlook on life and uh and on gaming and things like that so for example for for alima it seems that Baldur's gate 2 is one of those so uh hey hopefully she'll be on the call we'd love to hear your voice so if you've got a comment about that you know be it uh king's quest or Baldur's gate or anything else you can always send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com thanks to rick moyer my good buddy for his great audio work, you can find his stuff over at multimedia or sorry, Moyer, multimedia.com. 
And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, if you find some value from the podcast, please consider joining my 41 current patrons and donating a buck or two per show to help me with costs and to hit the next goal of weekly Let's Plays. Only $9 left as of today, and I have to come out of my shell and actually put something on the YouTube channel again. You can check out the show notes for this show and other episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I do occasionally put up videos of my game research sessions. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, and that is that, and we will see you next time for King's Quest here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.